Hello and welcome to the planet today. It is Friday, February 24th, 2023. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, question for you. What is Bocce's favorite human food treat for special occasions? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I think it's got to be whipped cream, even though she's extremely... Uh, lactose intolerant. She like does not do well on any dairy whatsoever, but she absolutely loves whipped cream, and she like knows the sound of it immediately. That's hilarious. Yeah. We um we found out that Nora and Penny like chicken, like shredded unseasoned chicken. Nice. And uh, they really like crab meat. Same deal, unseasoned crab <laughs> meat. <laughs> nice, dude. That's great. Yeah, and you're gonna notice too. Like as you get it more often, you give it to them more often. They're going to notice the sound of it right away. When you pop that can, they're going to be like, boom, he's got it. He's got the crab. Let's go get him. Well, they better not get used to it because crab is a little expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, get him an invitation crab. uh, It'll fool him, right? We'll try that next. (laughs) All right. We got a jam-packed episode for you today. Got some good news. Got some bad news. Let's get into it now. hits for the week and the first one is by Valerie Volkovici, Andrea Shalal and David Lauder of Reuters and it's titled Fact Box Who Could Replace World Bank President David Malpass? If you haven't heard of David Malpass, he was appointed as head of the World Bank by Donald Trump and his term was set to complete next year. The president of the World Bank is typically headed by someone from the United States since the US is the largest shareholder. Reuters also mentioned that developing countries and emerging markets are pushing for others to lead this position, along with the head of the International Money Fund, which is usually a European. Malpass will officially resign in June, which means someone new will have to oversee the World Bank's poverty, climate change preparation, emergency aid, and other initiatives around the world. Reuters calls out several names that could succeed Malpass as head of the World Bank, including U.S. officials climate change experts, and global development professionals. We'll list them off quickly before going back to Malpass. Yeah, so like Nick said, Reuters lists off a few that are maybe some likely names that we're going to throw out here. Um, We will see. It could be somebody totally different or one of these six. Anyway, Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala is the current head of the World Trade Organization and has dual U.S.-Nigerian citizenship. Gail Smith is the former administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, under President Obama, currently serves as the CEO of the One Campaign, which is an NGO focused on ending extreme poverty and preventable disease. Samantha Powell currently leads the USAID and won a Pulitzer Prize in 2002 for her book, A Problem from Hell, about the U.S. failure to prevent several genocides in the last 100 years. She's an accomplished human rights advocate, journalist, and diplomat. Rajiv Shah is a former USAID administrator under President Obama and is currently president of the Rockefeller Foundation, a philanthropy group dedicated to promoting global well-being. 
Minouche Shafiq is a British-American economist who is currently the president of the London School of Economics. Shafiq was born in Egypt. Wali Adeyemo is the deputy secretary of the U.S. Treasury and has played a leading role in coordinating sanctions against Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. So hopefully one of these six people or someone else can do a better job fighting climate change as the head of the World Bank. Climate change is one of the biggest global issues of our time, so it's really important for the head of the World Bank to be dedicated to fighting it. Malpass had created lackluster plans for green investment since his appointment back in 2019, which notably did not do enough to finance the global transition to a low-carbon economy. Malpass came under fire in September for refusing to validate climate science when asked by a New York Times journalist, which we actually covered on the show. Although he later attempted to clarify, the damage was already done. Yeah, and it definitely didn't help that we already thought he was anti-climate science before that. So, look, I understand that with the U.S. being the leading shareholder in the World Bank, 2019 was the most recent appointment. Donald Trump was president at the time. The bar wasn't very high for what we expected for you know an anti-environment president to appoint as the head of the World Bank. But unfortunately, something like that is really going to tank our global reputation because most countries in the world really do see climate change as this imminent threat that is already happening that we need to solve as soon as possible. When David Malpass came out and and wasn't emphatically saying that, yes, climate change is, is real, yes, the World Bank is going to use our funds to do something about it, people got understandably nervous, so much so that Al Gore, former U.S. vice president, immediately called for him to step down. And I'm going to read a quote from Al Gore quickly. It says, humankind needs the head of the World Bank to fully recognize and creatively respond to the civilization-threatening danger posed by the climate crisis. It's true. Yeah, this is one of those things where there's this thing called bad optics, right? And when we talk about bad optics, we're talking about, okay, this is probably something that doesn't look good for, you know, a company, for a, a government body, for some for someone in power. This is a perfect example of bad optics. This guy is literally supposed to be in charge of securing funds towards getting, towards fighting climate change. Mm-hmm. And he literally would not validate climate science. And I know it's like, okay, you don't want them to put the words in your mouth, but this is something as simple as just saying like climate change is real, it's here, and like there is science to back it up, and here it is. Yeah. You know, like this is something you just have to have if you're going to take this position. Yeah, and, and all it would have taken is, like you said, it's real, it's happening, and we are going to use the money that we are allotted to fight this to actually fight this. Yeah, exactly. And like, I don't, I didn't even need to hear like, oh, it's climate change is human caused, even though we kind of know that, even though that's been proven, just say that it's like happening, <laughs> happening. Yeah. Like literally, it's that's not like some the lowest bar we could possibly set on this show. Yeah. The, the bar is low for the next person, but that doesn't mean we're not going to hold them accountable because we need to hold them accountable. You know, we need progress from the World Bank. We need this funding to go towards the things that are going to help, like implementing renewable energy in developing countries, fostering some sort of fund that, you know, we just had all these earthquakes that happened in Turkey and Syria. The the aid that's going to go to them, Mm -hmm. that should be part of a climate fund. Hurricane relief should be part of a climate fund. All of these things that, sure, we could reactively say that something bad happened, let's go help. 
it's a hell of a lot better to put our money where our mouth is and say proactively we are going to take steps to make sure that these disasters are less impactful moving forward. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. All right, the next story is from CNBC TV 18, and it's titled Global Fossil Fuel Subsidies Reach All-Time High of $1 trillion in 2022, up twofold against 2021. This is just so incredibly frustrating for me because like we just went on a long rant about why it's important for the World Bank to be fighting climate change. And then you see that global fossil fuel subsidies last year were the highest they've ever been. We'll get into why we'll get into maybe some sort of scenario that impacted that last year specifically. But just overall, the optics of this one are, are tough. So across the world, nations are trying to decarbonize. Some are doing a better job than others, for sure, but it does at least seem to be a global priority. At the same time, global subsidies for oil, natural gas, electricity, and coal reached an all-time high last year. According to the Paris-based intergovernmental organization International Energy Agency, the oil majors have also recorded record high profits in 2022. Subsidies were as low as $0.22 trillion in 2020 because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But aside from that, subsidies had been between 0.37 to 0.75 trillion since 2010. They increased to 0.53 trillion in 2021 before doubling last year. Oil subsidies specifically rose 85% last year. More than half of the subsidies are from fossil fuel exporters, and roughly $350 billion came from Europe as it scrambled to replace the supply from Russia. So, I mean, that's where you can kind of say that maybe this was a fluke. You know, maybe this was a a weird blip in the trend, but yeah, I I don't know. I I mean, I understand the, the need to supply more energy when we're trying to not fund Russia's war campaign. It's just tough to see how much subsidies increased by knowing that all of those oil and gas companies recorded record profits because they were doing pretty well. And I don't know if they needed all of these subsidies to continue to do well. Um, I'd say that something that's even more frustrating for me is that these subsidies were more than double the investments in renewables last year. And, you know, hopefully this does have more to do with the issue caused by Russia invading Ukraine. And these subsidies are not a trend for years to come because we really need to decarbonize. And making fossil fuel energy cheaper helps in the short run. But at the same time, I really hope that this trend doesn't continue and that renewable investments are the ones that are increasing twofold next year, at least. Yeah, I think this was just a case of like wrong time, like just bad timing. I think this had to just be a blip on the radar. Mm -hmm. This is not something that will happen, I think, year over year. Um, Hopefully this is just kind of something that happened because of our need to replace the, the, like quickly replace the supply that we had from Russia. Mm -hmm. It was a result of something that was completely unforeseen. Yeah. And I hope you're right. And and truthfully, I think you're right. I think that makes a lot of sense that we would need to boost our short-term fuel production. It just bothers me, like I said, that at the same time that there was all these subsidies going in and making it cheaper for oil to be produced or sold or traded, all of these companies experienced record high profits while last summer, you know, 
people were struggling to put gas in their car because it was more expensive. Yeah. And by no means am I saying like, oh, they didn't take advantage. Yeah. Of because they a hundred percent did. They took a hundred percent advantage of the situation. But ultimately, people need gas to to run their businesses, to run yeah. their cars, and it's as simple as that. So to heat their homes too. To heat their homes. Yeah. Exactly. All right, let's move on to our next story, and it is titled Australia Blocks Coal Mine to Protect Great Barrier Reef by BBC's Tiffany Turnbull. Here's some good news for you. Where Australia has blocked the creation of a coal mine under its environmental laws for the first time in the country's history. Nice. The new mine would be 10 kilometers or 6.2 miles from the Great Barrier Reef. So Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek said it posed an unacceptable risk to the World Heritage Area, which is already highly vulnerable. The owner of the mine, billionaire Clive Palmer, has not yet responded to the rejection, according to Turnbull. His firm sought to build an open-cut mine that would produce both thermal and coking coal over its 20-year lifespan. After opening this project to public comment, more than 9,000 submissions in 10 days were received. Most of these called for the project to be stopped. Australian state governments have rejected proposals before, but this is the first time a federal environment minister has used their powers to do so. So look, this is great news. You know, this is something where I don't know the exact damage that this would have caused. I don't have the data right in front of me. I can tell you that six miles away from the Great Barrier Reef is not the best place to put a coal mine. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like I don't care how much money it's going to bring in. I don't care how much coal you're going to rake in. The Great Barrier Reef is one of those things that is like top priority for protecting right now. Yeah. I don't know what they expected to happen when they were like, yeah, we're going to put this mine in here. And I'm glad that Australia stepped in and was like, you are absolutely not going to put this mine right next to the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah. No, this is like the biggest no brainer of all time. The person that even drew up the plans for this should be just completely fired from their job. Um, it, six miles from the Great Barrier Reef. What did, what did you think was going to happen? I mean, seriously, like you, you had to have expected that this was just going to get declined. Yeah. So, um, and I'm completely glad that it, it, it did get declined. So, yeah, no complaints here. Um, I'm going to close this one out with a quick excerpt from the article. Australia is a major global supplier of fossil fuels. When exports are factored in, the country accounts for producing 3.6% of the world's emissions, but with only 0.3% of the world's population. While the new government has significantly increased Australia's 2030 emissions reductions target, it has also said it will approve any new fossil fuel projects that make commercial sense. That right there is part of the issue with global subsidies going towards fossil fuels, because right now you're going to see a lot more fossil fuel projects make commercial sense in the short run. Mm -hmm. If we continue to have global investments in renewables, it's going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and people are going to start installing way more renewable facilities than, than we're already seeing. And that trend is already increasing. So, you know, New World Bank leader, like we mentioned before, let's make it happen. That way Australia doesn't see as much commercial sense and sees more commercial sense in wind and solar and battery storage and all that fun stuff. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with you. All right. After the break, we are going to have a couple more quick hits for you. So stay tuned. Keep it right here.
Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Valo Alta. Valo Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. the planet today everybody next up at least three dead and 100 injured after a new earthquake hits the syria turkey border by david ingram victoria di joaquino and reuters published in nbc news yeah this is awful news and something that we spoke about last friday um, definitely not something i'd anticipated talking about happening again so soon but a 6.3 magnitude earthquake hit the region again on monday um, on Tuesday, that was upgraded to a 6.4 magnitude earthquake. This killed three people and injured 213 as of Monday night. By Tuesday, that number was up to six deaths at least. Nick's going to play a 30-second clip from last week's show where we explained why another earthquake could happen. And, uh, you know, unfortunately at the time, we were really not expecting this to, to come in just a week later. As of Tuesday, the death toll had surpassed 41,000 people, with nearly 36,000 of those coming from Turkey. Over the course of nine hours, there was a 7.8 and a 7.5 magnitude earthquake. Each one of those struck southeastern Turkey and northern Syria on February 6th. According to geologist Tony Nemmer, the fault line that broke in Turkey is nearly 200 miles long, but only part of the fault line was broken in the recent earthquake which means that another earthquake could hit the eastern part of the fault line within the next few years here. Reuters reported that the shaking set off panic and damaged buildings in the nearby city of Antakya, and that the earthquake was felt in Egypt and Lebanon. The earthquake caused an electrical blackout in the Turkish coastal city of Iskenderun and caused some buildings to collapse. Syrian civil defense stated that two uninhabited buildings collapsed in one city, and additional buildings cracked in another. Thousands of less intense quakes have taken place in the region since the 7.8 magnitude quake on February 6th. But this was the first substantial one since the initial two quakes. These earthquakes have resulted in over 1 million people being left homeless in the two countries. The aftermath has caused intestinal and respiratory infections due to decreases in clean water security and debris in the air. As the United Nations appealed for $1.4 billion in funding for its relief operations, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken announced additional aid to Turkey and Syria would bring U.S. contributions up to $185 million. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I'm, I'm relieved to see that the U.S. is putting in close to $200 million to help out it's just really tough. You know, we talked about it last week. There was over 40,000 deaths over the course of two weeks in these two countries. Um, 
it's just really not fair. You know, it's, it's just brutal to think about so many lives just suddenly taken. Yeah. I saw ESPN reported that, um, Ghana soccer player, Christian Atsu died at age 31. And, you know, it just kind of reminds you that this could happen to anybody. Yeah. You know, he, he lived in Turkey, but this wasn't just people that were, were born there. People that were there on vacation. This was, you know, it could happen to anybody, whether you're rich, you're poor, you're young, you're old. And it's just absolutely devastating news that second time in two weeks, we're covering a third earthquake to hit a region that, you know, now desperately needs humanitarian aid and financial aid. Yeah. This is not an easy one by any means. Um, and to have, like, I know we talked about it last week and how it could, you know, happen again, that there would be another quake, but to think that it would be this soon is unimaginable. And for a region that's already experiencing so much heartbreak and, and hurt, I can't even imagine the trauma of another earthquake um, so soon. Yeah. it's It's got to be completely traumatic, and I, I just feel so bad for everyone who is uh, affected by this. Yeah. And, um, you know, the the focus now, it, it there's going to be a lot of focus on the infrastructure and, and rebuilding. Um, I think the focus now, for me personally, needs to be on the people on the survivors on those who are still fighting with, like we said, those respiratory infections. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to doctors without borders. They've been working in Syria since the early days because they already had a big presence in the region. Um, in other locations, it says they have su- donated supply kits and they're in touch with local health authorities to provide support. You know, a, a one-time donation really goes a long way. If you can afford to do more than others, go for it. But yeah, you know, a- anything helps. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely go check out our show notes um, in this episode. All right, let's move on to our last quick hit of the week. And it is some happier news from Sherry McWhorter of MLive.com, who writes national parks along Lake Superior to be first to fully decarbonize. This article is actually from late January. It got stuck behind some of the more time-sensitive stories that we had for the show over the last couple of weeks. But five national parks along the Lake Superior shoreline plan to completely decarbonize their buildings and vehicles within four years. The Lake Superior National Parks are expected to be the first nationwide to completely decarbonize. This is going to be challenging, but it speaks to how urgent the situation is. Tom Irvine, executive director of the nonprofit National Parks of Lake Superior Foundation, is quoted in this article as saying, if you don't set an ambitious game plan for something like this, then it just doesn't get done. Part of our interests and part of our private funding interest is we've got to get on it and we got to get on it now. Yeah, it's kind of like what we talked about a few weeks ago when we were talking about banning plastic water bottles in Hawaii. You know, if you pass the legislation stating that it's got to happen by this date and it is going to happen by this date, mm. then people find a way. Yeah, It definitely helps that this group of parks already had decarbonization plans in the works when the IRA passed. Um, so it basically just opened up more money and more federal infrastructure funding to them. I could see if a park had no plan in place and was just like, hey, this would be a good idea for us to decarbonize. Oh, the IRA just opened up the funding where we now have the means to do it. It's a little bit harder, but they already had, you know, the, the first stepping stones taken care of. Yeah, exactly. 
The parks include Minnesota's Isle Royale, Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore, and Keweenaw National Historic Park. It also includes Wisconsin's Apostle Islands National Lakeshore and Minnesota's Grand Portage National Monument. A study recently estimated that it would require $15 million to improve efficiencies and replace fossil fuel use with solar energy, batteries, heat pumps, and to replace gas cars with electric vehicles and electric ATVs. Most of the funding will come through the National Park Service budgeting, including new dollars from the Inflation Reduction Act, Great American Outdoors Act, and bipartisan infrastructure legislation. Private donations through the Five Park Foundation will cover the rest if needed. Isle Royale National Park will probably be the most difficult one to decarbonize since it's an island park offshore in Lake Superior. This means it is powered by diesel generators, which is something that park visitors and administration have hoped to change for years now. Yeah, when I go to national parks or even just local parks, I'm going to be with nature. (laughs) I don't really want to hear generators powering the gift shop. (laughs) Yeah. This article also says that plans call for 81 buildings at Isle Royale to be retrofitted for heat pump water heaters and LED lighting, along with a 1,500 kilowatt off-grid solar array with 695 kilowatt capacity battery storage. Seven utility task vehicles will be replaced with electric vehicles and accompanying charging stations. Basically, what that last paragraph means is the existing stuff is going to become more efficient while also getting sourced by clean energy. Tina Smith, a U.S. senator from Minnesota, said that these parks can be a model for the nation for how climate change can be incorporated into our beloved system of national parks. And I hope she's right. You know, this could be the blueprint for how more parks get this done. Decarbonizing is an important part of conservation. You know, the people who go to national parks are typically the people who care about the environment anyway. Mm -hmm. So I could really see park goers getting behind this. Yeah. And it could be even just like a reason to get people into the parks. But yeah, this is this is great news uh, in general. And how about the the Midwest leading the charge on our national parks, uh, renewable energy stuff? That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And look, they said they'll get it done in four years. So hopefully February 24th, 2027. That's our lead story on the planet today. Yeah, that'd be great. Maybe we could do it like live from the park. Yeah, you know, we could, <laughs> we could see what we could do here. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see. All right, that will do it for today's episode of TPT. We're going to be back on Friday for another episode, but until then, please go to the show a five-star rating wherever you can. You can follow our socials at Planet Today Pod for more TPT. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. Nick Chanusa produced our show and makes all of our music. Nick, where can people bump those tunes? You can bump those tunes at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Friday. Peace.